to Pop the Question, a podcast that exists at the intersection of pop culture and academia. We sit down and talk about our favorite stuff through the lenses of what we do and who we are. From Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University, Dr. Melinda Lewis here. I'm your host. I'm here with Jen Ayers, faculty fellow in the Center for Interdisciplinary Inquiry here at Drexel University. Hi, Jen. Hi, how you doing? And we're going to talk about fashion. We're going to talk a little bit about memory, your work in all of those categories, and maybe some tributaries along the way. Do you have any specific fashion memories from childhood? Yes. Okay. For me, the earliest fashion memories, it strikes me how like gendered they are, of course. Yeah. So I have a twin sister and we're identical. But for whatever reason, we were obsessed with plastic toy high heels from oh, the supermarket. Who wasn't though? So some of my earliest memories are us, you know, begging mom and dad to get us some of these toy high heels and then clomping around <laughs> in them. And we would also take tape and tape our fingernails in as if they were like you know like acrylic nails yeah and so my earliest fashion memories are symbols of femininity that like we threw on i also remember nails being very big to me particularly a certain shade of red nail and the long 80s nail that i still equate with like wow you're a woman who means business (laughs) and i want to be that woman too but i have no concept of how that filtered into my system outside of maybe watching Def Leppard videos. Uh, designing women. Designing. Oh, you know what? There it is. <laughs> Mystery solved. It was all the designing women I was watching. Yeah, I noticed you've been acting a lot happier. In fact, it seems you've been having yourself a heck of a good time with Julia and Mary Jo and Charlene. I'm glad they were able to inspire you so with their old money and legs that go on for six miles and hellcat hair. <laughs> Yes, getting into dress up, it is always uh, experiments with glamour. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily s- like say that glamour is only associated with like elite and like bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. Like it could have been the glamour of David Bowie or the glamour of Def Leppard, <laughs> <laughs> leopard print, everything, and you know hair metal type of politics. Um, there's like material qualities there that we're mm-hmm. drawn to that I don't think you can just limit as only wealth i think like are we always in search of Mm. class aspirations or and it's like no like (laughs) that's a it's an aesthetic that isn't limited to a particular class um and i'm thinking here dolly parton and peg bundy were like you know the hyper femme speaking of red nails yeah that might have also been yeah part of the draw and it's the perversion of norm hi al honey i bought a new dress how do you like it Well, I don't know, Peg. I'd have to see it without you in it. It's the John Waters making the norm so absurd that it's like the most amazing, freeing entity possible. Yeah. Which is one of my favorite things. Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. Take whatever you like. How's oh. this for a center spread? Oh, oh, yeah. That, to me, is like my favorite anthropological, but also humanities favorite movement that it does is making the familiar strange Mm -hmm. you know i love that theoretical conceptual move so what happens in between middle school and high school where you're like oh wow i gotta reinvent myself 
we grew up in like a working class area mm-hmm. and also it was like the foothills of california and everyone's like a snowboarder a skateboarder because you got the sierra nevadas there mm-hmm. um and a lot of like you know blue collar working class a lot of very ag- agricultural uh, lots of alternative culture um like alternative radio stations Van's Warp Tour became like a, a thing in high school. Certainly did. And so we like started to experiment with that, both my twin and I. Um, halfway through high school, we moved to Davis, California. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when basically I found thrifting and, and punk. So, yeah, thrifting was this, like, total paradise um, that did meet this real class slippage issue. And it wasn't, for me, that's always a big thing of, like, vintage is not about elite, like, designer items. It's never been about that to me. It's not about mimicking high fashion or getting high fashion for cheaper. For me, it's about the one of the kind Mm -hmm. where it used to be mass produced. Like, to me, there's, like a dialectic there or you know or like something of buying back your memories of Mm -hmm. buying back something that society has already moved on from and so I was still actively thrifting a lot um, Mm -hmm. because I loved engaging with the material and also looking at the things that were in the thrift store and hanging out with the people that were also obsessed with things at the thrift store the random communities and that to me that like searching the like putting in the legwork to like find something that is not immediately available is what I hear a lot also for why people you know get into punk and into you know obscure subcultures um because it takes this like different sort of interaction with consumer society it's like Mm -hmm. a sort of a rejection of consumer society or you know a a tweak on it in some way like something surprising right something that will shift it's that quality of what sustains people having the these collections for like years on years or to keep going back to something that does require a lot of work on their part and dedications mm-hmm. because it's so unique and special but when you get right down to it it's not the package that really matters it's what's inside the wrapping it's what's down deep in your heart that's what really counts is that true that's very very true maybe but just the same it's nice to have a pretty dress have you had any moments during thrifting that have been particularly serendipitous yes where you notice like ah this is like thrifting at its core it's not the thrill of the hunt that drives me it's the serendipity Hmm. so it is the fact that like you go into this unknown territory and you're just open to whatever may be there and then all of a sudden bam and it's also because of the questions it opens up of like who made this why is this here mm-hmm. and why does that person no longer have it yeah. um that keeps me obsessed with thrifting but with interacting with secondhand things it's like almost a spirituality mm-hmm. of like the things that you'll be thinking about that you'll um talk about with your friends that all of a sudden a bam, just appear right before you in the thrift store if you know if you have your eyes open and you know where to look. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I love that um, because that to me makes the world feel like very small. Yeah, I feel like all the positive experiences I've had thrifting, even though I know this isn't true, 
it feels like this shirt or this item was made specifically for me to find at this moment. Yes. So that Bengal shirt that I found in Indiana, Pennsylvania in Steelers country was made for me to wear every Friday. I believe it's meant to be Or my clowns, right? My ceramic clowns that I collected for so long because who else but me would want these? Even though clearly somebody had them. Clearly somebody made them. Yes. Who took the time to be like, you know what we need? Ceramic clowns playing a saxophone. Yes. And this one's got to be silver and this one's going to be purple. Yes. And this is who I am as a designer. And who was purchasing them. Yes. Who was bringing them to the Goodwill. Yes. Or savers because they were multiple places. Yes. Everybody was collecting them. And I love that everyone collects different kooky things. (laughs) Do you have a favorite item? That's a hard question um, because for me, my favorite things are the ones that have the sentimental ties. It's me buying back my childhood items. Mm -hmm. And now I particularly love, as I get older, buying back the things that my nan and granddad had. Mm. Like my sister and I always hated their apartment. It was greens, yellows, 1970s uh, aesthetics. And now I just can't get enough of it. Um, <laughs> Cause I think I'm, you know, getting older. So I'm now looking more fondly on something that's been long gone from mm-hmm. my memory. And then, you know, collecting is like buying back your early memories or like buying back the things you never were able to have because Mm -hmm. your family couldn't afford it. You can afford it. Um, So I think there's something very real there also of, you know, buying back or, you know, engaging with your self-narrative that Mm -hmm. way as well. So many memories. It's your mom. I have a question about that podcast you do. Are you on the Instagram or the Twitter or the Facebook? You know, like if I have an idea for a podcast, how do I get in touch with you? Love you. Bye. Sup, mom? Uh, yeah. So you can find us on all those things, actually. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just go to PopQuestPod on any one of those and follow. If you want to send us ideas, you can either go over to our website and leave us a message at PopQ Podcast, or you can get us directly at PopQ at Drexel.edu. You can actually find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Um, I can help set it up when I get home, but then you have to promise me to rate and review. All right. Love you. Bye. So how do you go from thrifting and being interested in fashion to actually studying? So I experimented uh, in college with reselling. It's like that was just so much work, even back in 2001. The feedback shows you won't get hosed when you do it Can I make a go of it if I resell on eBay full time for my summer break? Would I make enough money? And the answer was no. But like the day that I graduated UC Davis Women and Gender Studies, I opened my own shop in Sacramento, California. And my little shop did really well. And after six months, then my sister and I opened our first real big store that was like 900 square feet called Thunder Horse Vintage in Midtown Sacramento. And my sister took it over when I went off to grad school. Um, And then she closed it 
a few years back so she could relocate to Portland, Oregon. Um, And actually, she's about to have her year anniversary of her Portland vintage store she just opened. Oh, that's so exciting. And that's called Wild Stallions Vintage. Wild Stallions! It was really powerful to have our own business because Mm -hmm. it was our vision that my sister and I created together. And that was like the best feeling in the world. So from, I got into Cornell to do my master's in apparel design um, and did basically the ethnography of the Goodwill bins, Mm -hmm. photographing different ones and then talking about like the communities that form there. Um, Because things at the Goodwill outlet are there because they either haven't sold at regular Goodwill thrift stores or they're not quality enough. So they all go to this, like, you know, misfit toy island (laughs) called the Goodwill Outlet, the bins. Hidden gems. Designer name brands at everyday low prices. You seek them out with the skills of a seasoned hunter. Going there every single day for three hours a day to sort through these troughs of piles of clothes with other people that are doing the same thing quickly realize like oh other people are doing the same thing but they're not doing exactly what i'm doing these are all multinational entrepreneurs that are selling to you know home communities um or specific markets they know about and that is fascinating because it's basically the global economy right there in front of your eyes (laughs) like oh these books are going these paperback books are going to you know west africa these shoes are going to um northern you know uh, mexico and to to see the the interconnectedness Mm -hmm. between everyone's lives is the like ultimate goal but uh, the, oh, there's a world of possibility there. That's at the margins. Um, and the margins are where lots of people feel home because um, mm-hmm. you can do things differently in the margins. Uh, and then to the fashion industry itself, how is that transformed into this commodity that we call vintage, vintage clothing? But here's the challenge. Okay, here we go. <laughs> it needs to be upcycled. Oh, yes. Taking discarded clothes and reconstructing it into something new. You're teaching a lot of courses kind of centered around fashion and memory and having students record that. What are you finding? First, I think talking about memory and thinking about memory is really important because it's a reflective exercise Mm -hmm. um, that gets you to a space asking you to think about who you thought you were or when you first found out who you were. So it's like a a reflection exercise. that has to do with identity. And for me, that like very quickly becomes political. Mm-hmm. And so I like to tap into that, um, you know, shifting economy or like shifting, you know, race relations, shifting, you know, class aspirations. And it's it's fascinating of like the social reproduction aspect there of this is totally a women's field. And like, why is it a women's field? Um, Because mostly women are tasked with caretaking, Mm -hmm. taking care of the memories, taking care (laughs) of the, the, you know, the stories of the family. Um, You know, all these forms of matrilineal wealth we don't have anymore. And Mm -hmm. I think how this latest transition to post-Fordism and this increasing precarity Mm -hmm. robs us of that material culture of passing down your quilts, passing down your linens, passing Mm -hmm. down these uh, really gendered forms. If you get evicted and that trunk now disappears, well, that's just, you know, it's done. Three generations of lore, of memories just out the window. And that's also something you see at the thrift store all the time that I find Mm -hmm. heartbreaking. 
do you feel as if the future is in thrifting, that we're having more conversations about reusing materials? Do you think we're moving into a different direction? All these stores are shutting down. It's a, a win for everyone when we reuse more stuff, except when we're not paying attention to who might be left out. If all of a sudden all thrift stores are upscaling and trying to mimic the now closed Ross. I got it at Ross. I got it at Ross. I got it at Ross. That's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I pinpoint like the blame there on thrift store nonprofit organizations that are losing sight that their primary goal should be allowing access to mm-hmm. consumer goods. Um, and as soon as a big nonprofit starts to try and become middle class, um, a, they're delusional. Thrift stores will never be a middle-class shopping destination mm-hmm. as long as they're diverse, heterogeneous spaces. And uh, two, it is something that I think, honestly, there should be legislation about, that mm. if you are operating a nonprofit and you don't pay income tax and the bulk of your inventory comes f- from the public for free, you need to be generating living wage unionized jobs. Mm-hmm. You should be a job center that actually provides good jobs, um, as well as a commitment to the community that goods will be affordable. People often ask, what exactly does Goodwill do? This is my favorite part. We use the money to fund programs that help people become more independent. You should see what we can do with a pair of these. Goodwill. If there is a revolution coming with like the <laughs> secondary economy and it's an app-based revolution where now all of a sudden you have all these reselling apps, um, so we call it the digital vintage economy. Um, yeah, that's really good. For me, more platforms of people reusing, recycling, upcycling what they have, mm-hmm. I think is great. Next, our step is to seize control of these platforms, <laughs> make them workers cooperatives would be the dream goal there mm-hmm. um, of, you know, what would an Etsy or a Depop or a Instagram even look like if it was controlled by the users, the, mm-hmm. the people that generate the revenue for these platforms? What if that they made the decisions about how the platform operated. Yeah. Well, Jen, thanks so much for hanging out and talking to me about this. You've opened up a Pandora's box of thought for me that I will continue with. Thank you for for having me. Yeah. This was really fun. Pop the Question was researched and hosted by Dr. Melinda Lewis. Our theme music and episodes are produced by Brian Kantorik with additional audio production by Noah Levine. All of this was done under the directorship of Erica Levy-Zellinger, the deanship of Dr. Paula Moranz-Cohen, and the Pannoni Honors College at Drexel University. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. But we talking about practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice. We talking about practice, man.